All right, cool. So this is Jay Khadija Abdurrahman, and we're on the We Be Imagining podcast. Shout out to Columbia University's the American Assembly and Insight Center for making this happen. Um, and oh, I'm here with my co-host Alam Mandel. What's up, Alam? Hey, Khadija. How's it going? Chilling, chilling. Could you share what pronouns you use and a little yeah. bit about yourself? I am a PhD student at Cornell Tech. I use he/him pronouns. All right, cool. Um, I use she/her pronouns. I'm the director of We Be Imagining. Um, and today we're here with Brianne Barker, a professor of biology with expertise in vaccine development, HIV biology, and understanding immune responses to viral infection. She has an active research laboratory with undergrad students studying the immune response, particularly the inflammatory response to HIV and other viral infections. Um, although the way that we got exposed to Brianne's work is through um, her co-hosting the Immune Podcast, part of the TWIV suite of SciComm podcasts, which we actually, that's what inspired us to do podcasting. I was the one who originally put Elon onto TWIV. And I just like, to me, the best part of podcasting is that there's just this like hyper niche content. I feel like now during COVID, Vincent blew up and, and now everybody listens <laughs> to TWIV. But prior to COVID, it felt like we found this thing that other people didn't know about. And you get this like real inside baseball look at virology. Um, and I really appreciated that. And then I was so excited when I saw Immune um, because actually when I really started binge listening to um, TWIV was my son was in the hospital for a long time with um, autoimmune encephalitis. And so I had a lot of time sitting there and I needed something else to think about. So I was listening to TWIV all the time <laughs> and like writing people. I remember there was an episode about like viruses and oceans. And so I spent a lot of time looking at that. And so that's, I spent a lot of time thinking about immunology. And when I saw that on, as part of the TWIV suite, I was really excited. Um, but with that said, Brianne, if you could say a little bit about who you are and your work outside of the like traditional academic bio. Sure. So um, my name is Brianne Barker. Um, I use the pronoun she, her. Um, and with after a sort of circuitous uh, academic path, I ended up at Drew University, which is an undergrad um, institution. So I do research and teach uh, undergraduates. It's amazing to work with undergrads, but it also is a very different path. Um, from being at a traditional uh, R1 institution. Uh, I got very excited about science communication, largely hearing about um, the Draw a Scientist project and the fact that uh, most kids didn't draw women as scientists. And so I wanted to sort of help uh, represent women in science. And all of SciComm for me has sort of blown up um, with the pandemic. Uh, and I also absolutely love being at a small liberal arts college because I get to do sort of creative and innovative things that I never would have thought that, you know, I would be able to do. Like I run a study abroad trip over the break and things like that, that all started while I was here. So it's, it's a really fun thing to do, place to work and thing to do. Cool. I have to say both Elon and I, I mean, I think that, well, maybe this is, I, we also often transpose our particular experience onto all of academia. So I don't know how much this is true, but, and I mean, with my like involuntary ethnography of hospitals through my son's experience, I feel like medicine could be like this too, but it's just very hierarchical. Um, and so people barely treat PhD students as human. So when we saw that you're doing this incredibly complex research with undergrad students, we were shocked. Like, really, like, I don't know, there's like no words to explain. And just, I can imagine the autonomy, but if you could say a little bit about, like, how do you have them out here studying like polyglutamine binding receptors? Yeah, yeah. So um, I get that all the time 
when I go to conferences or when I'm giving presentations, no one can believe that undergrads can do this sort of stuff. Um, but actually, undergrads are incredibly enthusiastic. Um, and they are sort of thirsty to get into science and to get into these things they've always thought it might be possible to study. Um, if you actually give them some attention and sit with them and explain things and talk through things, they will do amazing work that you would never have necessarily expected. And so I have students who tend to start working in my lab um, when they are first year students at Drew. Um, and I pair them up with older students um, so that the older students can sort of train them a little bit in the project and show them what to do and also get some mentoring experience. Um, and then we meet all the time and just sort of talk our way through experiments. Um, we have a journal club. They read primary lit and sort of argue about primary lit uh, in a way that I learned how to do as a grad student. And they're just so excited and if you actually give them a chance and give them sort of some of your time, then they can do tremendous things. And that's what's nice about being at a primary um, undergrad institution. You know, my time and what I'm rewarded for is different than at other types of institutions. And so I can sort of spend that time with them to make sure that they are getting what they need to develop. No, thank you for that. And the other thing that stood out to us was um, like going to the Barker Lab website. It's like very minimalist. We're used to like very ideological, like ontological framing of like tech and the humanities. <laughs> Everything is staged as like, you know, this major like battle of like two different futures. And these are the tools that we're creating to intervene. And we found your website was like very minimalist. But these questions about like how are viral nucleic acids sensed in infected cells to signal an inflammatory response also seem very complicated and people have been looking at this in relationship to HIV for you know a while now but that hasn't resulted I feel like so much of the research is like wow this was so much more complicated than we ever anticipated in terms of these downstream signaling as it led to like here's the cure oh yeah um, no absolutely um and I think that for me as a scientist one of the things that I didn't always understand growing up in becoming a scientist and one thing that I really want to communicate is that scientists are people um, and science is not just this thing that comes from on high in a textbook it's done by people and the lab is full of actual humans and so to me sort of thinking about this as you know a minimalist website makes it easier for you to focus on the fact that yeah this is a website that a person made this is a website that is talking about the work of individual people um, and so I want to make sure that we're focusing on that aspect um, because, frankly, if in the end, the biggest thing that I did for science was I helped some people realize they could be scientists, I'm cool with that. Oh, Elon, sorry, did you want to say something? See, look, now we have, like, nonverbal. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I was, I was a little bit curious, right? Like, the the papers are highly technical in a way that I think that um require a fair amount of grounding right like right like just like this is this is in in many fields but i i've i feel like i've been able to kind of pick up papers that are outside of my field and and, and read them kind of get the get the lay of the land relatively quickly this is not that and and some of that i think is is jargon right like there's mm -hmm. <laughs> right like this feels intentional in the way the language is structured um 
And I'm curious about what the, what the process you go through with students of kind of doing that translation work, right? Like, is it just introducing them to literature and then being there to answer their questions? Or like, how does that process actually occur? So it's about introducing them to literature and being there to answer their questions. Um, but it's also, a, in some ways, a little bit of immersion. So I don't necessarily introduce them to literature that is widely spread across the field we pick literature that sort of builds one after the other. And to be honest with you, usually by about the third week of working on the literature, they will start to say, hey, this thing in this paper is, is the same thing that was in the paper two weeks ago. Um, and they start to make those sorts of connections. Um, so I think that that's a really big part of it. Um, I also am very big on the idea of understanding concepts more than understanding vocabulary. And so I've told them all the time, let's think about the big picture and how this works. And once you have those concepts, we'll hang some words on them. But right now I want you to get the big picture understanding of what's going on. And I think that they can usually, they can get that pretty well. And they're pretty excited to be able to talk to their peers about it. Well, I guess one of my questions is that my kids were arguing over dinner and I was trying to like distract them by telling them, I was like, yo, I'm, I'm talking to this immunologist on the podcast tonight and we're talking about pattern recognition receptors. And they were all like, what, what are you talking about basically? And so this was the analogy that I gave them. And maybe you could correct me if I'm wrong and then like make us help us understand this. But I was like, yo, it's kind of like a doorman are like community policing. They're like posted up in the cell. They know everybody really well. They figure out like who should be coming in, who are the pathogens, like where's the damage being created. And they're kind of like identifying what are like associated with pathogens and what is like uh, endogenous, what's supposed to be there within the cell. And if there's something messed up with the doorman or like the people that's like monitoring what's coming in and out, like it dysregulates all these other functions. Um, or they're like letting other things in that are not supposed to be there. Um, but I, you know, I don't know how far that analogy goes. Yeah. So I was no. if you could tell us a little bit so, about how so it works. I think that's really good. So um, we have these receptors in cells that can recognize the pathogens, just like you're saying, or can recognize some kind of damage to the cell. And then uh, those uh, receptors will lead to some kind of signal that basically goes to inflammation, um, some kind of immune response. And this is in the original cell that gets infected. So usually when people think about the immune responses, they think about sort of some outside cell coming in and stopping infection. But this is in that first cell right when it gets infected, um, how it recognizes infection, um, responds to that, and maybe warns its neighbors um, to make sure that they are protected and they are better able to combat things. And you could imagine, just as you said, if there's a problem with that doorman, if there's a problem with that receptor, you could let in um, pathogens that shouldn't be there, um, or you could not respond to damage that you should be responding to. Um, but also, and this actually turns out to maybe be part of what's going on with HIV, um, you can have a, you can imagine a doorman who freaks out way too much. Um, and who, you know, sees maybe some little issue and has a way too large of a response and suddenly causes extra damage because of that excess response um, as opposed to sort of dealing with things in a sort of proportional way. 
Um, and so um, with the immune system, there's this, always this big issue of too much of something is a problem and too little of something is a problem. And so we want to figure out how those receptors are both understanding, hey, here's a pathogen, but also responding in an appropriate level, responding in an appropriate way to understand, to like deal with that and not uh, cause too much damage with their response. And so how, how does that take place with HIV? So um, one of the reasons why I got really excited about sort of working on pattern recognition is um, due to the, uh, this group of primates. Um, and this is all data that was coming out right when I finished my PhD. Um, and so I got really excited about it and did a postdoc on it and sort of went into doing this. And it turns out that there are a bunch of monkeys um, in the wild who get a virus that's just like HIV. It's called SIV, simian immunodeficiency virus. And some of them, like chimps um, or rhesus macaques, end up getting a version of AIDS. But others get this virus and live happily ever after and have no problems. Um, absolutely no disease. As my PhD advisor would have told you, they live happily ever after eating bananas. Um, and when people tried to figure out what is different between these two groups, um, what they saw was that the differences in how much of this inflammatory process happened, how much of this innate immune first reaction occurs. Um, it seems like in the primates who get uh, disease, they make a response and that response never calms down. They make a response and it's just way too big for a huge amount of time. Um, and you can imagine that might cause extra stress to the immune system, lots of immunologic damage. Um, in the monkeys that live happily ever after, they make a much smaller initial response to the virus and then that response goes away and they seem to be much healthier. Um, and if you read a lot of the literature about this, what it will tell you is that evolution happened and they kind of have this hand-waving stuff of like, well, evolution happened. Um, some of these primates have, uh, their ancestors have been infected for 12,000 years. So there was time for evolution. And I say, well, okay, cool. Evolution means that there's a change in a gene. Um, so I think there must be some changes in the way these monkeys are making that first response to uh, the viral infection. And so I started looking at the ways those first responses uh, are made via pattern recognition receptors. And I'm just curious, like how much has that changed like within one uh, monkey's lifetime or one human's lifetime shaped by the environment? Just because when I'm thinking about inflammation, I also think about like environmental stress and weathering and things like that. Um, there is definitely a ton of variation kind of within humans or within different primates. Um, I don't think people have looked a ton at sort of how much variation there is within some of these different primates because they're not um, as amenable to work with. Um, there aren't a lot of them in um, sort of experimental settings, but there are certainly plenty of places where inflammation varies um, from person to person as well. In, in preparation for this interview, I, I was reading about simian immunodeficiency virus, and I was absolutely fascinated to realize that it had been around for like minimum 12,000 years, and then oh, some of the estimates way, go way like 30,000 yeah. years. Um, and yet we, we kind of contextualize in the US HIV in the 80s, 
And then the kind of history of it seems to go back to about the 1920s and there's like the, the hunter hypothesis, right? And, and I'm sure you could explain all of this much better than me. But the, the fact that this is such a recent uh, kind of transmission between apes and humans, even though this seems to have existed in apes for an immense amount of time, and wondering kind of, you know, what are the, what are the reasons for that, right? Like, why, why did it take so long almost seems like rather shocking. So th this question is like so right up my alley. Um, remember how at the beginning I mentioned that I get to do stuff that's kind of creative and out of the box uh, teaching undergrads. So we have this one class at Drew um, called the Drew Seminar where faculty are just picked and we basically teach students how to do critical thinking and writing on whatever topic that we sort of choose. Um, and mine is called HIV AIDS biology in the global context and we spend about a, a whole section of the course on exactly this issue. <laughs> um, and I have another course where we do it emerging infectious disease where we do this for all the major infectious diseases, not just HIV. So love it. Um, so yeah, we think that there have been primates infected with SIV for a really long time. We think that there probably were, in, so we think that the first people who were, the first infection um, of people was in right now, we think 1908, um, where this virus crossed over um, into people. There probably were a whole bunch of earlier spillovers where perhaps one person got infected and then didn't spread the virus on further. Um, and perhaps, you know, we, they didn't have a sort of documented um, sickness. They didn't, you know, no one really noticed what was going on. But if you think about some of the things that were happening in the early 1900s, um, particularly in um, some areas of um, Central Africa, like um, the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, there was a lot going on in terms of things like colonialism issues. Um, and so um, that was one of the times when firearms came to some of that area. And so suddenly, uh, and there were also um, forced migrations of people into um, camps to build railroads. Um, and so suddenly there were changes in movement of people there was deforestation, which brought the monkeys into closer contact with people. Um, you can imagine that when they had these large railroad camps, um, there was increases in sex work um, that could lead to spread. Um, and so things like that, um, which are really kind of more social changes, tend to be a huge part of how an infectious disease can spill over from an animal reservoir into people. Um, if you look at things like the population density um, in some of the cities where we think this spillover happened, um, because we can find the virus in the monkeys still there, um, in the time between, say, 1920 and 1960, you can see this dramatic population explosion. Um, and you can also see that um, Haiti was a country that was affected very early in the epidemic. It turns out that um, many people from Haiti and many people from the Belgian Congo um, were actually traveling between those two areas um, because of their common uh, history speaking French um, and because of availability of jobs as changes happened with the colonial structures in both places. So when the Belgians left, suddenly there was a vacuum and there were extra jobs. Haitians came over to the Congo, the Haitians came back. Um, and so you can come up with 
you can sort of look at all the different parts of the emergence of this um, infectious disease and realize that you can tie them back into some of the, the big sort of social and environmental things going on. Um, and there, there's, there's, there are all sorts of books about this, and there's a huge list of different um, things that were, that were happening. Um, but I think that this is really important in realizing that you can't take science and infectious disease and separate it from everything else. Um, there are so many other things that are actually bearing on what I, as a scientist, like to think about. No, I was just thinking about, I mean, all of the, it's funny, I'm at Cornell Tech, I'm all around graduate technical people, and at Columbia, I'm around all the social science people, and all the social science people, like, immediate, I feel like this is a very academic thing, like, the immediate response to the shelter-in-place order was, like, putting together pandem pandemic syllabus, and so people started, you know, like, providing all the social context, so, like, how do we deal with cholera, how do we deal with dysentery, how did we mm -hmm. deal with, like, 1918, um, and then like in response to the other pandemic of like state violence against black people, you know, the STEM had like days of reckoning, but I'm not sure that I see like reflected in the like medical, like basic science research, like so much of this like interdisciplinarity. There's kind of like a checklist, like, you know, we, we will center these voices, but I'm not sure if I see that all coming together, but maybe it's also because we're reading so much like Western based text. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think that that is totally the case. Um, and I think that there are a lot of places sort of in the academy where being in your disciplinary silo is sort of rewarded um, and you don't have the recognition of going across disciplines um, that you might have in other places. And so, again, that's why I love being at an undergrad institution because everyone's super excited when I decide to go across disciplines. One of the things that I've been doing while I've been at Drew is I took over this study abroad program. There, there was another faculty member who was working on it. The study abroad program started going into more health-related issues, um, and he didn't have a background in health, so he asked if I would be a part of it. Um, and it involves taking students to South Africa for three weeks. Um, and because of some of the issues with HIV in South Africa, I was, I was really interested. But we end up working with health practitioners who are sort of across a lot of the different types of disciplines. Um, so we meet, we have consultations with Sangoma and we talk to a lot of different types of medical practitioners. And so I have learned a lot about some of those non-Western approaches and how important some of those holistic approaches can be and how we do miss out on that um, in our Western-based approaches. Well, also, I mean, I think for Black folks in America now, everybody's so scared to go to the hospital. I feel like for better or for worse, uh, people are developing like their own palliative care um, out of like profound fear of just going to the hospital. Right, which I, I think is actually, you know, I, it's understandable and it's really unfortunate. Um, and I think it's something that a lot of people in the medical establishment need to actually recognize and think about a little bit more, both what is that palliative care looking like for people outside and how can that be supported and why are people scared to come to the medical establishment and how can that be changed. Um, and I think all of those things are places where some of the people in the Western medical establishment need to take a long hard look at themselves. Do you feel like in your field, kind of some of these interdisciplinary approaches are are like valued like how, what is the what is the response like is it kind of like people are like oh no, no no like let's just talk about receptors when you show up and start talking about like the history of colonialism at a virology <laughs> conference it, it it you know i i pay a lot of attention to who my audience is 
um, and, you know, what type of situation I'm in. So, you know, if somebody asks me to give a talk about receptors, if somebody invites me to an immunology conference to hear about my science, then they usually hear about, you know, the picky details of receptors. Um, if I'm on TWIV, then I'll talk about the picky details of receptors, but I'll also tie that into how it might relate to other things. And so, you know, you can get me onto the receptors in bats and why we have viruses spilling over from bats with about two seconds of questioning. And so I think a lot about who my audience is and what they're looking for from me at that particular time. There are times where I'm all about the interdisciplinarity. Um, my students hear about the interdisciplinarity kind of 24 seven. Um, but there are also times where I want to be sort of showing people what a great female scientist can be like. No, I was just thinking about, um, I think this was like around April. And I remember Vincent was talking about, uh, he loves to talk about like bioarchive preprints. And then there was mm -hmm. this point at which people were like infiltrating with spam. And it just did feel like this moment, though, where, you know, there's no real security to preprints, I mean, in general, right. but it was like, oh, we've been discovered. Like, I think that there's like <laughs> some things that are like the scientific comments that people just think are unaware. And it was like, oh, no, the others, they're coming in now with their disinformation. Yeah, no, I think that there's there's so many places where kind of what the scientific process looks like is not transparent at all um, to people outside of the sciences. Um, and Bioarchive and preprints have been a big place where that's that's been a thing. You know, ideally with bioarchive, um, you as the reader are being the peer reviewer, but you don't always have the background for that. Um, the other thing I was thinking about, I thought this might have been apocryphal, but I looked it up and I actually found the Nature article, the interview with him was, um, I was reading about all this interferon and I remembered this story, which happens to be true. So Nature interviewed Gene Linderman in 2007, where he was talking about how he came up with a name and saying that he was at Zurich and like he wanted to be a physicist and then Hiroshima happened. He was like disillusioned and joined medicine but like really loved those uh, like particle physics kind of uh, nomenclature. So that's where he added like the suffix of on onto interferon. And I was just wondering like, you know, we often find that like tech is so fetishized that everything brings in data now, but I also heard that like medical, medical school applications are up now um, after COVID because everybody wants to be a hero. And so I'm just wondering like what's influencing now, like our language and like the inspiration and the curiosity, like where do you see that in immunology? Well, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, I think that in terms of immunology in the past, there has been this language almost of war. Um, where, you know, there's the bad guys and the good guys, and there's the invaders, and, um, you know, we're going to fight them. And it, if we actually think about what immunologists have been learning over time, we've been learning a lot more about it's sort of like tending the garden um, and not sort of just keeping all the microbes out, but keeping the right balance of the right microbes or, um, you know, again, not overreacting. Um, and having sort of appropriate responses. And so this idea of kind of having a good community um, and sort of having appropriate responses among the cells in that community um, instead of just, you know, having a war and killing all of the bad guys um, has been a new way that immunologists are thinking. And I think we're trying to describe that to other people. But again, I... I this is sort of me being, you know, with my sort of crazy background, but, you know, I suddenly get 
surprised all the time when I hear people talk about the things they don't know about viruses. And so I, I could be, you know, really overthinking things because I'm make, giving a lot of assumptions to what people might know about, about virology and immunology. And so if nothing else, I hope that perhaps people will start to actually understand some basic science because um, it's really cool. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I feel like people, it's interesting when you said being a good woman scientist, like I often think that people think that feminism is just representation. Um, and so what, may, what you were talking about, and I think about this with Ntozaki Shanga's work, it feels like vaginal epistemology, you know, so there was this time where people just wanted to douche everything out. And now we're like, no, we need balance. We need regulation. Yeah. And <laughs> I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that last paper that you published, because from what I, what I gleaned from it was part of it was a level of surprise um, in there oh, about, yeah. hey, it does this one thing in relationship to viruses, but now when we're looking at it, we found that it works, it's a little more different and complicated. Yeah, exactly. So um, we were looking at a protein called uh, polyglutamine binding protein, um, PQBP1. Um, took the students a lot of practice when they would work on saying that. And uh, there had been a previous paper looking at PQBP1 and its ability to um, respond to HIV. And that um, previous paper had said that PQBP1 was required for an interferon response to HIV. We had uh, a whole lot of ideas about how to figure out more about that, um, but we don't have the ability to work with some of the more virulent viruses in my lab um, just because of biosafety concerns. We and kind of most everybody in the field, if you read a lot of the literature, will um, deliver DNA to cells as sort of a fake viral infection. And so that's what we, we do a lot of. And we started doing our experiments and delivering DNA to cells. And we found that we got the exact opposite response as uh, the previous researchers had gotten when they used full virus. Um, so in their case, um, PQBP1 was required for interferon. In our case, PQBP1 seemed to be blocking interferon. Um, and when we looked back through the literature, we could see that this was because the um, nucleic acid, this is because the DNA was in a different part of the cell. And so it seemed as though PQBP1 was partially sensing the location of the DNA in addition to um, just the fact that the DNA was there and was actually leading to a different response whether or not the, the DNA was in the right or wrong location. Um, and we thought that was really cool. It was sort of the first time that had been seen for one of these types of receptors where that receptor was making such a, a sort of fine discrimination. Um, and we also knew that there might be DNA outside the nucleus. Um, our research was mostly looking at DNA outside the nucleus. The previous paper had looked at DNA inside the nucleus. Um, there might be DNA outside the nucleus when you have DNA damage um, or sort of things leading to cancer. And so we actually looked at DNA damage. We saw that PQBP1 had interesting effects um, with DNA damage um, that it again seemed to inhibit interferon. And we um, then got um, some publicly available data on patients. And we also showed that the level of PQBP1 expression in patients um, was related to um, their cancer survivals uh, data. And so um, the idea that one of these proteins would act in sort of opposite ways 
um, just based on the location of the signal um, was not at all something we expected, was not something that we ever set out to do, uh, but it was really cool. Um, and it has given us, it has actually sparked a lot of different experiments that we never would have expected. And also on the interdisciplinary note, I'm just curious, I saw that you noted there that um, genetic mutations in PQP, see I can't even say it, polyglutamine, <laughs> one, um, uh, were like well explored in, um, in neurology because it's associated with Renpenning disease. So I'm just wondering how much does that like influence what you were looking at? Yeah, so basically um, before the HIV paper that I mentioned, um, PQBP1 was only ever described in neuroscience models. Um, and so there have been no study of it at all in the immune system. In fact, one of the figures in our paper is just showing, hey, look, this protein's in the immune cells too, um, to say that we should be looking at it. I think that as an immunologist, I get excited because I know that both cells of the nervous system and cells in the immune system can be, um, can have some, they have some similarities in terms of how they deal with stress and things like that. And so knowing that a protein is important in both is pretty cool. Um, but I work really closely with um, other people in my biology department who are neuroscientists. Um, and, you know, I took a whole bunch of the PQVP1 literature about Renpenning syndrome into their offices and sort of started to say, okay, what does this mean? What is this doing? How does this work? Is, are there ways that some of the things we see that are seen in Renpenning syndrome could be related to inflammation? And trying to just figure out, you know, taking their knowledge and my knowledge and trying to put them together. We spend a fair amount of time talking about kind of interdisciplinary research and like it's fundamentally hard right like there's all these there's there's barriers for a, a variety of reasons right like one is that it's not always rewarded um but then also there's kind of language barriers but then there's this other thing that comes up which is like i find you have this moment where idea generation in an interdisciplinary way works great it's like all the latter stages where it gets hard and then you know this leads to all these like especially in, in kind of like computer science and computer science adjacent fields, like kind of messiness, where it's almost like a form of like piracy, right? Like you see this in the digital humanities where like people will go and sp spend time with, you know, kind of like classic English scholars or whatever, and then like do the like computer version of that and get tons of acclaim, get tons of funding. Um, and I, I think that, there, there may be this benefit to what you're describing of, of a kind of smaller, smaller university where it's undergrad focused, where that kind of structurally happens differently. Yeah, I, I agree so much with that um, because I think that one of the things that is a part of some of that interdisciplinary research um, and that interdisciplinary work is that it, in some ways it, it can take a little bit of time um, in order to have both sides really understand what's going on and to synthesize things across fields. Um, and the, you know, frequency with which I need to publish to move my career forward is less than it would be at certain other places. And having publications with other colleagues is really rewarded. Um, you know, instead of, you know, when I was in graduate school, um, I was in an immunology department that had 90 immunologists. I now am part of a biology department that has 10 faculty members um and so just sort of the, the what are the barbecues like 
pre-COVID. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, great. Uh, everybody's sort of kids running around the backyard together, <laughs> having a good time. Um, and so I am much closer to, like, I have a really close friend who's one of my physics colleagues, um, and she's interested in building microscopes. And so, you know, she'll come and she'll be like, I need a thing to look at under my microscope that has the following parameters. And I'll be like, right, let me tell you about cells. Um, and so that's just sort of the nature of how things are, because that's who we have to work with um, in every possible way. And so I, you know, um, started this South Africa trip and I actually invited a friend of mine who is a political psychologist um, to start running a parallel trip on um, the Truth and Reconciliation Committee and the psychology of reconciliation um, because it seemed like something that we could kind of work together on where I could think about healthcare, he could think about reconciliation. I gave a talk in a class earlier this year. It was a class about Shakespeare um, and a particular year in Shakespeare's life. And there was a big plague epidemic. Um, and so I gave a science talk about the plague um, because we were then gonna look at how Shakespeare had, wrote, had written about the plague. And by the end, uh, the other faculty member and I were kind of like, oh my gosh, here are all the things we wanna write an article together about. Um, here are all the things we feel like, you know, are not being covered in the literature uh, because, you know, I was bringing some things she hadn't read before um, and she was bringing some different things to me. So I think that's how these types of institutions work. Um, you know, there certainly are cons, but that's one of the big pros. And I've always kind of been a person who likes to jump around from discipline to discipline. So it's a good fit for me. One of the things that appealed to me when I first started learning about immunology is that um, it's kind of like anti-reductionist. And so like a big, a big thing that we talk about in the epistemology of algorithms is there's this idea that like human decision-making is predictable. Um, and it's interesting, like reading a lot of like the data method sets in like these scientific papers, you know, we can, we're a little bit like open versus the majority of times when we were seeing like machine learning models enacted, it's like, no, this is a really bad idea. Like the, the political consensus is like a right to a refusal versus like, if you're, if you're trying to like analyze like EEG waves or something like, you know, there, this is a place where we, where we would endorse that kind of thinking. Um, but I would guess, I guess it's been a little bit of an open-ended question, but like, what would you see as kind of the epistemology of immunology? Like, what are the ways that thinking about the immune system kind of makes you think about everything else? Well, I think that with the immune system, exactly as you said, um, it is really hard to be reductionist. Um, that actually somewhat makes it difficult to be an immunology professor um, because you have to figure out how to take that and teach it. Um, because every piece of the immune system is really interconnected with every other piece of the immune system. Um, and so it's hard to actually come up with sort of one thing in and of itself. And to me, you know, that just makes me again like to think about ways that you know not only is our t cells talking to b cells and other types of cells but i like to talk to my physics colleagues um and you know we get more out of having those conversations across um some of those boundaries i think the other thing and this is me as a bio professor totally and completely um the other thing that I really like about immunology when you really get into understanding the details is that in a lot of places, it's really counterintuitive. Um, and I love that because I love the way that it makes me think about evolution. 
And it makes me think about the fact that, you know, systems do not evolve in this perfect way to come up with the absolute perfect system. You could imagine the way that the immune system could work in a perfect world, and that is not how it works. It works, it has been molded through so many parts of evolution um, to solve different problems. And, and I think that that to me is just fascinating. Do you want to do you want to get into the weeds a little bit on on some of the ways that comes up in your research? Like, what are some really specific counterintuitive things? Okay, so this is this is a little bit further from um, my research area, but it's something I teach about all the time, and um, it's one of the most fun days of my immunology class because my students' heads kind of explode um, a bit when we're talking. Um, so um, you have T cells; um, they are an important part an important cell in your immune system um, and they um, make some receptors by breaking their dna and so they cut and paste their dna they do recombination to make these really unique diverse receptors um, so it, and it's a really really fascinating process um, and you can basically imagine when those t-cells are developing that um, there are um, 10 to the 16th, so that's, is that billion, quadrillion, <laughs> um, you know, 10 to the 16 different uh, T cells that your body makes in the organ, the thymus, where T cells are developing. Um, and what you have to, the problem that your, those T cells have to do is that some of them, when they made their receptor, made a receptor that's completely useless. It, it isn't even a functional protein. Um, and some of them made an amazing receptor that is going to bind to um, flu and help protect you from flu. Some of them have made an amazing receptor that's going to bind to the Ebola virus. And um, hopefully you're never, gonna, you're never gonna use that one. And some of them have made receptors that respond to myelin or other types of sort of self proteins that are autoimmune. And it is actually advantageous for you to make all of those specificities um, and then go through a process where you test them all and delete the ones that seem self-reactive um, as opposed to just making them on demand. Um, so in your immune system, you make one of every possible B cell and T cell. You then test them to see if they're useful and you throw out all the ones that are useless and you test them to see if they're self-reactive and you throw out all the ones that are self-reactive. Um, and then you basically let the rest of them go out to the body and leave the thymus, um, leave T cell school or leave the bone marrow um, if we're talking about B cells. And that ends up being a huge resource drain. Basically, you're um, with T cells, 95% uh, of developing T cells die. And so you, you, you know, when my students will hear about this, they'll be like, no, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Why would you make all of those cells to then kill them? Um, and why, why would you want to have that kind of resource drain? And some of the cells that make their way out of the thymus, um, are kind of self-reactive. They had to get enough of a signal in the thymus to leave 
Um, and sometimes they're going to be kind of self-reactive and kind of ready to give you an autoimmune disease. But it turns out that all of those things are the only way you could imagine an immune system giving you breadth of responses so that when different microbes are evolving um, and replicating quickly, they never have the ability to out-evolve us or to out-replicate us. You know, our generation time is how however many years you want to say, um, E. coli's replication time is 20 minutes. Um, they are going to be able to mutate and change around every possible thing we ever throw at them. And so as a result, we have evolved our immune system to make every possibility of B cell and T cell from the beginning um, and throw them away and waste 95% of them as opposed to having a situation where there's a hole where a pathogen can mutate its way into that hole and sort of beat us. I just tried to take like two weeks of a class and <laughs> break it down. So that might have made no sense, but. No, that made a lot of sense. I appreciate that. I'm just also curious, like where, where does this research or kind of even your work, like where, where does it stand relative to like the end user? like the patient with an autoimmune condition, the patient with HIV, particularly because experiencing like someone else's experience with an autoimmune condition, it seems that we're like not that far away from people with, I don't know, lupus being thought to have hysteria. Like the, there's, you know, inflammation causes all these non-specific symptoms that I, everybody seems totally confused by and most are missing the mark. Yeah. So pattern recognition receptors um, were really first described in we'll say 1999, um, the 2011 Nobel Prize was given for the discovery of pattern recognition receptors. And so the hope throughout this field is that as we understand the signaling process, we're going to be able to block more specific types of inflammation. And so I might be able to block inflammation that goes through PQBP1 um, while leaving all of the other types intact. And thus, in theory, you could block just the inflammation happening in one disease state while leaving the patient um, doing much better. You know, that's, that's still a dream. Um, and you know, there's still so much we need to learn about these receptors. I feel like every time I, I'm pretty sure I know something, suddenly I uh, read a couple more papers and I'm like, whoa, there's just so much more here um, going on. Um, but in general, you know, originally the idea with autoimmune diseases, um, and you know, I have a family member who has an autoimmune disease and I can think about how their treatment has changed throughout my life. You know, autoimmune diseases used to be treated with very, very, very broad um, kind of immunosuppressive, if that. Um, and that was great because it sort of helped the patient, but it messed up their entire immune system. Um, and now uh, there have been a number of different monoclonal antibodies that have been described that hit one cytokine, so one part of that inflammatory response. And that's, it's pretty far down the inflammatory response. Um, and those have been really life-changing for some patients. Um, and they, have, they are much, much narrower in terms of how they're impacting the immune system. And so the idea is that if we could um, understand some of these pattern recognition receptors better, then we could target them with small molecules and go even one step further 
and be one step narrower um, in helping to block the patient's, um, you know, immune response and just their pathologic immune response as opposed to everything else. So that's the goal. Um, I'm not going to say we're at all close to being there yet, but that's the goal. Uh, but I guess my last question is if um, you could just explain a little bit for our listeners, um, what does this mean? Viral nucleic acid sensing infected cells, like as part of an inflammatory response. Like if you could give, when I, when I first heard it, I was like, oh, this reminds me so much of like ANN, but if you could say a little bit more <laughs> about it and how it operates. Sure. Absolutely. So um, your cell has some nucleic acid, RNA and DNA, and it's usually kept in specific places. Um, it has specific structures. And viruses, when they replicate, um, will have either RNA or DNA, depends on which virus we're talking about. And it might be in the wrong spot. It might be in a weird structure. Um, that virus is trying to take over the cell um, and use it as a new virus factory. And so um, I really care a lot about whether or not we have these receptors that are going to recognize that, um, that nucleic acid right from the get-go, as soon as it's in the infected cell, um, and eventually lead the cell to make um, inflammatory cytokines, to make basically these messenger proteins that they're going to send out to their neighboring cells so that those neighboring cells can prepare themselves for viral infection, um, maybe become refractory to viral infection, um, or otherwise start up an immune response. And so in a lot of ways, these pattern recognition receptors to our current understanding are, allow, are basically having the cell kind of respond and realize there's a problem, um, realize that perhaps that cell is not going to make it through <laughs> this situation. Um, in a lot of cases, you know, when a cell is virally infected, there isn't a whole lot to do for that cell. Um, but that cell is going to, in some ways, kind of do its best to let its neighbors know and to make sure that its neighbors are protected um, from this process. Um, and so that's a big part of what I'm trying to understand. Um, some of that communication to the neighboring cells um, is a big part of why we have disease. Um, you know, your fever, your, all of your symptoms um, that you have following viral infection are because of these cytokines that the cell is making. And so the more we can understand how the cell decides when to respond, how the cell decides how much to respond, how the cell decides how to respond, um, it, the more it's gonna tell us about um, disease following viral infection, but maybe even other things. And do you think that immunologists are, are ready, are prepared to deal with, I mean, when I first heard of COVID, I was like, mm, how is this gonna end up a year from now when people are dealing with those like inflammatory responses uh, to the virus and like all the, uh, the, 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 the follow-up that's not just mortality. Do you feel like immunologists are prepared to address that? I feel like I wish people were talking more about the fact that it's not just mortality um, and that there are all of these other things going on. When, so when I was in high school um, and I would talk to people about my wanting to do science, sometimes uh, some of my non-science um, people in my life would be like, yeah, go out and be a scientist and cure the common cold. And I'm like, ha ha ha, no, we're not going to cure the common cold. Um, and now, uh, you know, no one's interested in actually curing the common cold. And now I'm like, man, if we would have worked on the immune responses to the common cold coronaviruses, we would be so far ahead right now. We would be like in the best shape ever if I would have just listened to some of those non-science people in my life. Um, I think that immunologists are learning fast and immunologists are doing a great job in 
sort of taking advantage of things we've already started. Um, so one of the reasons why we're going to be able to get the COVID vaccine done so quickly is because we're using the HIV vaccine trials network that was already built. And so I think immunologists are happily getting a chance to build on things they've already been doing. Um, but I think um, we will also be kept in jobs for a really long time trying to figure out what is going on with this inflammatory response. Uh, I think it's, it's, if nothing else, humbling to realize just how many things we don't know um, and to get a list of, okay, these are the things we actually need to figure out way better than we already have. Well, thank you. I mean, and Ilana, unless you wanted to say something, I was going to do our closing ritual, which is, is there anything that you would like to recommend to our listeners that you're reading, watching, listening to? It could be on topic or off. Oh, um, <laughs> there's, there's so many uh, things that I could think about, but I guess I'll, on my sort of on topic, um, I'll say that if people are really interested in some of the stuff we've talked about with infectious disease emergence, um, there is a really great book called Spillover by Sonia Shaw. Um, and another one, uh, or sorry, Pandemic by Sonia Shaw or Spillover by David Quammen. Um, <laughs> two different books that I guess I was pushing together um, that are really cool descriptions of a lot of those things that are going on right now. Um, I am currently reading Braiding Sweetgrass, um, which I think ties into some things that we're talking about, but I'm not far enough in it to feel like I can speak intelligently on it. <laughs> well, cool. Thank you so much. And shout out to um, the Immune Podcast. When's the next one coming out? We just released one, um, I think last week. Um, we release one a month. Um, we're actually recording tomorrow with the Black and uh, Immuno crew um, for Black and Immuno. Oh yeah, very excited. Yeah, yeah so we're recording that, that like tomorrow. Um, and we're going to, and that'll be released during uh, Black and Immunology Week next month. Um, so that's what we've got on the schedule right now going forward. Well, also from like an information science perspective, it's very convenient that everybody's going with the same branding because it's easy to like hashtag things and then it like <laughs> collects all the information for you. Um, that's something I really appreciate. So shout out to everybody doing that. So thank you to everyone. Um, this is the We Be Imagining podcast. We're here with Brianne Barker, Elam Mandel. Mm -hmm.